Well, good morning. Uh, as you can see, uh, Brad Smith is away, so uh, I, I, this is an uncommon thing for me to be standing up here the whole time, but it's a, it's a joy to be doing it to lead us in worship, and now we come to a time where we get to look into and dig into God's Word. We're continuing our study in First Peter. Uh, we're looking at chapter 3, and we're going to be looking uh, at verses uh, 8 uh, to 17. They're printed for you in your bulletin. Um, just as a reminder, uh, we've Peter's been talking about what it means to okay face suffering and trial and to live in light of uh, that trial in a righteous way. And he's directed his focus at different groups of people, talking about what it means to 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 submit to those various institutions, while at the same time being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, He's now moving back. He's saying, okay, I've talked to these specific groups, and now I'm going to look at all of y'all. <laughs> He's saying, I want, to, I want to talk to the whole church now, of what it means to live in a world, in a community, in a world uh, that is hostile to the gospel. So with that, let's turn to our text. Again, we're going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 17. It's printed for you in your bulletins. Hear God's word. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For... Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word, to see Christ, and to apply your word in our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I alluded to in the prayer, this was a painful week for our nation. And if I'm honest, I'm having a difficult time getting my mind around all the hate that is present in our country, in our world. I'm starting to feel numb. I don't know about you, but that's how I feel. And I start to get a little hopeless as well, right? And hopeless about the state of our society. 
I'm struggling to see the end of the cycle, right? It just feels like one cycle after another cycle. And it's, it's multiple things, multiple issues that are, that are going on. But I, I, I just start to become hopeless. That is until I go to God's word. And I read a passage like ours today, and I'm I'm reminded of the only thing that can break such cycles of evil. The only thing is the gospel. At least it's the only thing that I know of, the only solution. You see, Christ, our victorious king, crushed the head of the serpent, even as he was humiliated, spat upon, and hung on a cross. In other words... He blessed the people, offering salvation to all, even as they were yelling at him, crucify him, crucify him. You see, he didn't repay evil for evil. But when he was cursed, he blessed. He defeated death itself. That's where I find my hope. That's it. That's where my hope lies. And our text calls us to this same kind of action or motif that, uh, that Christ himself does. He certainly isn't calling us to secure salvation for any, anyone. That's his uh, purview, his prerogative. But we offer hope and life in the same way as we live out the gospel. Uh, when Christians live as Christians ought within their community, that is within the body of Christ, as well as in the world, when they bless and love one another, as well as they bless and love those outside the church, even when they are mistreated, or maybe I should say, especially when they are mistreated, they offer hope. We offer hope. I've often talked with folks about how we can reach out to the world with the gospel, right? That's part of our mandate to go out into the, all the world and make disciples. And so we want people to come to see the glory of the gospel. And it's sometimes hard for us to think about how to do that because we live in this post-Christian era where, you know, if you just say, well, this is what the Bible says, people reject it out of hand, etc. It's hard to have those discussions within the culture that we live in. And I've often said what I think we offer to the world as a church, and I've prayed this, is we offer a refuge, or we ought to anyway. This place ought to be a refuge from the chaos and evil that happens in the world. Gives reprieve to that constant barrage of anger and spite and retribution and hate and vitriol and selfishness and pride and malice and whatever other form of evil that is in the world. Friends, we offer a place that ought to be wildly different. Wildly different. Marked by unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tenderness, and humility. A place that does not respond in kind, but rather responds with kindness. That's what we're called to. And this is what the text calls us to. Bless others 
just as you have been blessed in Christ. And I want to look at this in three parts. Bless others just as you've been blessed in Christ. First, by blessing one another in the family of God. Blessing even when you are being cursed. And then to remind ourselves that you are blessed in Christ. So first, bless one another in the family of God. This is where it starts here in this home of ours. Before we can start thinking about how to respond to those outside the church, even before we think about being a place of refuge from the world, we have to think about how we treat one another within the body. It's our first goal. And so Peter himself begins in the house of God, and he uses five characteristics for those living in the household of God. He says, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind or humility. So we'll just take each of these in turn, look at them very briefly, um, but we want to look at all of them. First is unity, unity of mind or like-mindedness. Um, interestingly, this was also a valued trait uh, within Greco-Roman society. It would have been thought of as a good thing that we have this unity of mind. Um, and it's why last week uh, I highlighted the fact that uh, uh, when we looked at that very difficult passage about wives and husbands, how... Um, it would have been a shocking thing or a, a, a very countercultural thing for a wife, a believing wife, to go against an unbelieving husband's gods, right? Because that unity, that cohesion in the family was so important that the wife was to follow her husband in believing in whatever gods. And Peter was addressing these women who had disobeyed in that sense, in a good sense their husbands by following after the Lord Jesus Christ, breaking that cohesion. You can sort of see that this unity of mind was important to the Greco-Roman world. It was a valued trait. But there's something different here that Peter is talking about. He's not saying we should have unity of mind with everyone out there, but he's talking about having unity within the body of Christ. He's calling the church to be like-minded, not with the world, but with one another according to the word. Right? That's the, 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 the binding that we have. They were to rally together to the apostolic teaching. And I would say so it is with us as a church today. The more we rally to the truth of God's word, the more peace and unity that we have. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17 that we should be one, we ought to be one, even as he, that is Christ, and the Father were one. What an an amazing prayer. He was praying for us that we would be unified. Secondly, Paul says in Philippians 2, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, Spirit, any sympathy and affection, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. These are just a few places in scripture we could go where there's a call to unity. And I, and I would say, this doesn't mean that we will always agree on any given passage of scripture and its interpretation. Um, It may mean that amongst us, we have some very significant disagreements. And I would say, while that is 
part of living in a fallen world where we are, have fallen minds that can't grasp truths and are full of our own sort of biases and whatnot, it will get sorted out in glory. We will be of one mind for sure. Nevertheless, despite the fact that we may find ourselves, and I know I find myself at differences with some of you, and I love you, and we can have unity in these things, the centrality of the gospel and the foundational truth of the word. The word is our, is our solid standing point. We may disagree and love one another and be different from one another and be unified in the gospel and unified on that foundation of the word. We are called to unity of mind or like-mindedness. And I would, I would actually argue that even if we disagree, that we should be striving with one another, contending with one another, wrestling together with God's word, conforming ourselves to it. It's a good thing. It's part of the, the bonding that happens within the body. We're to be like-minded. Second, we are to have sympathy. What does that mean? I was blessed by so many people over the past week who showed their sympathy as I grieved the loss of my aunt. We are to feel when others feel. We're to have joy when others are rejoicing. We're to have sorrow and grief when others are grieving. We're to have an understanding of one another. Friends, this only happens when we engage in life with one another. As my, one of my mentors said, we have to live life on life. I think that sounds, I forget where he got that from, probably Young Life or something, but it's this, this idea of life on life. We have, to, we have to be engaged with one another. That's how you grow in your sympathy for one another. That's how you grow in your affection for one another. That's how you carry the burdens and sorrows of another as you live life with them and get to know them and get to understand them. Bear with them. Sympathy, like-mindedness. Thirdly, brotherly love. Philadelphia. How much brotherly love is in Philadelphia? But uh, I'm sure there's a lot. But we're called to brotherly love. This means particularly that we're called to love one another in the body of Christ. That's what brotherly love, brother and sisterly love. It's the love that the church has for one another and that call that we're uh, called to love one another. This is maybe one of the most challenging and radical things in Scripture. In John, for John's letters, he points out that the love of Christ is not in us when we don't love one another. That's a, that's a radical statement. Why do I say it's radical? But um, because how much pain and division happens within the body of Christ? Too much, right? Way too much. We're called to love one another. And it's interesting, I've, I've found over the years that it is the case sometimes, not all the time, that people in the church show a greater love and affection and service and willingness and kindness to folks outside the body than they would to the people in the body. 
They find themselves at odds with the people in the body. They're so difficult. They're all hypocrites. But I'm a Christian, but I don't, this church stuff is, I don't like church. And they're happy to be friends with people who don't have any of those core foundational things. But friends, despite how we feel with one another, we're called to love one another with brotherly love. What does that mean? It means not necessarily that you are best buds with every person in the church, but it means that you are willing to care for them, to come alongside them, to serve them, to show kindness to them, to consider them as more significant than yourselves, as Paul would say in Philippians 2, to listen to them, to forgive them, not harbor bitterness towards them. Friends, we're to love one another. By this, we're told that the world will know that we are followers of Christ. Fourth, we're to be tender-hearted, or in other words, compassionate. This means rather than hold sins against one another, we're to forgive each other, knowing how much we ourselves need forgiveness and have been forgiven in Christ. It means being someone who is full of mercy and grace. Ephesians 4.32 uses the same word uh, for tenderness. It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ and God forgave you. Finally, Peter says, be humble. Be humble. Um, I've learned the hard way that engines don't run long without oil. Um, They just bust. It doesn't go well. Well, I would say the Christian faith cannot be lived long without humility. And maybe this is one of the most radically different aspects of the Christian ethic. You might be able to take those other pieces and kind of fit them into the cultural matrix. But but humility is so opposite of our cultural milieu. Here, here, this was the case in the Greco-Roman world as well. Humility was scorned. Being humble was associated with being weak and part of a degraded social status. If you were humble, you were not looked highly upon, you were scorned. And I would ask the question, is it really any different today? Prestige and power, that's the aim of our society, right? Everybody is looking for prestige or power. You are measured by what you do and how much you make, not by how humble you are. Nobody goes into any sort of interview when they're asking about you and your character and, and ask the question, well, do you show humility? They might say, are you willing to listen and obey me? They might say something to that effect. But they, they're never like, is this part of your characteristics? Are you somebody who's generally a humble guy or a humble woman? No, that's ridiculous. One of our great American pastimes is to watch the rich and famous fall from grace. And there is this weird irony. On the one hand, we admire power, wealth, and prestige. And on the other hand, we want to see those folks humbled from those positions so that we can look down on them. Because that's, that is sort of the only thing humility is for. It's for those above to look down on others. Friends, you are called to be humble. 
to clothe yourselves with humility as Christ himself. What did Jesus do when he was in that upper room with his disciples? He got down and he washed his disciples' feet. It was just a picture of what we're called to. And of course, not only did he do that, but he willingly laid aside his glory and laid down his life. He considered the prestige of us more important than his own. Is that how we view one another? Friends, the church of Jesus Christ reflects these five characteristics. Not only will we bless one another with Christ, but we will offer something unique to the world. Something that can only be born of heaven. Something that gives joy and life. A Christ-filled community. And in that, that gospel community, the world will taste and see the goodness of God before they know its goodness, right? They, they, may, not, they may reject what you're saying in, from Scripture, but when they taste and see the humility, the love, the sympathy, when they start to taste the unity, the truths will come out. So it's kind of like a, the upside-down way of proclaiming the gospel. Bless one another in the family of God with these characteristics. Secondly, bless even when you're cursed. It is the way of the world to repay evil for evil and reviling for reviling. Isn't a grudge a powerful thing? When we are wronged, we can hold on to that wrong. That's what we do. That's what a grudge is. We're going to like, all right, I've been wronged. I'm taking that wrong and I'm sticking it here and I'm going to own it. And I'm going to hold it against them. And I'm going to use it as a weapon, as a tool. I'm going to wield it. I'm going to mull it over. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to consider all the ways to get payback. I'm going to relive the pain. So I don't lose the aim. On NPR yesterday, I listened to a disturbing interview with a man who had um, lots of anger against the political left and who said, if Trump were impeached, he said, all bets are off. And the, the interviewer said, what do you mean by all bets are off? He just said, all bets are off. He insinuated that he and a group of his like-minded folk would take retribution and retaliation into their own hands. He's alluding to violent action. He was harboring anger. He was holding against his political and social enemies. And this is the kind of rhetoric that is across the land, whether on the left or the right, there seems to be no responses but talks of retribution, retaliation against our enemies, whether they're political or they're social. Whether it's violence, whether it's political retribution or economic retribution or simply through vitriolic words that we say to one another, there's this sense of if someone does me wrong, if someone does you wrong, I'm going to do this in response. It's hard to imagine how our nation would ever come back into some sort of unified peace. We're so deeply at odds. The gospel of Jesus Christ takes an altogether different track. Peter says, 
Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Peter goes on to quote from Psalm 33 to defend his thesis that there is never an occasion for evil, no matter the evil done to you. Rather, we are called to do good. And this brings up the question, what does it mean to bless when someone has done evil against you? What does that look like? Does that look like being a mat, just kind of laying down? What does it mean to bless when someone does evil against you? I only could think of stories to kind of get at this. There was a story I read recently of a young Christian soldier who was mocked and ridiculed in his barracks by his bunkmates because every night he would sit down and read his scripture and he would pray. And one night, I guess one of his bunkmates was so mad, just kind of like annoyed with him, he took his muddy boot and he just threw it at him. This is a very small thing, but in the next morning, that soldier who had thrown the boot found it. Not in his bed, not smeared all over the wall, not kind of shoved up against his face, but he found it polished with the other boot sitting right next to his bed. Didn't return evil for evil, he blessed instead of returning the curse. I've related in the past the story of Corey Tenboom, who was sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp because she was hiding Jews. Later in life, after the war, she met one of the guards from the concentration camp. If you've read this story, you know it, but um, she forgave this man. What in the world makes it possible for us to swallow our pride, to show kindness in the face of reviling when you see your captor under whom you received horrible treatment and atrocities unmeasured and you're able to forgive? How is that possible? Let me just read the section from her account. She said, but I remembered him. And the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors. And my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And she had just given a talk on forgiveness, by the way. This man was sitting there, came forward after the talk. And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives is a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. 
If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. What makes it possible for us to swallow our pride, to show kindness in the face of evil? The only power that I know of in the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only the realization that Christ has forgiven us and blessed us and shown us kindness while we were yet his enemies. Friends, you are called to bless To show love and kindness in the face of evil. This does not mean that we will like the person. Like Corey Ten Boom, it may start out as an act in spite of our feeling, but it is an act that not only do we bless, right? As we do that act, do we bless, but we ourselves are changed. Weren't you struck by what she said with regards to those who forgave versus those who harbor bitterness? doesn't remove the wounds, but it changes the way life is viewed in the world. It breaks the cycle. Harboring bitterness and anger and rage perpetuates it. Friends, this might be the most amazing thing of all. As we bless those who curse us, we break a cycle. Rather than perpetuating and deepening divides, we show how the gospel can heal and help. And this brings me to my conclusion. Friends, you are blessed in Christ. You'll notice in the middle of this last section is this oft quoted verse about having a defense, you know, the apologia, knowing how to uh, make a defense about your faith. But it's within this context of blessing in the midst of cursing. Verse 15 says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ might be put to shame. Friends, when we honor Christ as the Lord, as holy, by blessing in the face of evil, by giving to the one who takes your tunic, right? That's what Jesus said. If he takes your tunic, what are you supposed to do? Punch him in the face? 
grab his tunic in return? What does Jesus say? If someone takes your tunic in a, in a legal settlement, what does he say? Give him your coat as well. Give it, give, it, give it all to him. Or like this fellow who polished a boot when it's thrown at you. This is how we honor Christ. Or simply by treating a person who maligns you or does something mean to you, you treat them with dignity and respect. Having a heart of forgiveness. When we show, show joy and pain and kindness in the face of evil, we show that our, our, our identity and our hope is not in ourselves, not in our social status, not in our power and control, but rather it's in something that cannot be shaken. Our hope is in the blessing of Christ himself. He has given us salvation that is secure and eternal. He was reviled for us and by us. He was crucified on account of my sin. He loved me while I was yet his enemy. And he has forgiven me who daily sins against him. Believers, you are blessed in Christ. You see, it's this radical, humble kindness born out of the blessing of salvation that will be to people a wonder. They'll ask, what is it about you that's different? Why do you have such hope? Tell me how you can have such joy, even as I've been treating you like dirt. And you have an opportunity to say, well... My Savior did the same for me. Let me tell you about him. Friends, you've been blessed. Turn around and bless others. Here in the body. And in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.